Section 25 of the Empresses of Rome. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Empresses of Rome by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 20 The Romance of Eudoxia and Eudocia. With the imperial ladies of the courts, of Arcadius and Honorius, we enter upon the final act in the tragedy of the fall of Rome. The sun is sinking rapidly to the western horizon. The long shadows trail across the record of events. The chill of evening contracts the life of the historic empire. The only aspect of that tragedy that concerns us is a consideration of the part that women played in the gradual enfeeblement of the Roman Empire. While taking full account of the various causes assigned by historians, it may be said that the fall of Rome was due to a coincidence. The invasion of Europe by the fierce Huns had pressed the Germanic tribes against the Roman frontier just at the time when the empire was particularly feeble, that it was inwardly outworn and doomed, that the organization of a state had an appointed term of decay, like the frame of an individual, may be confidently challenged. Egypt maintained its vigor for close on 8,000 years, Babylon for nearly 6,000 the only question we may touch here is whether the personality of the later empresses counted for anything, either for good or evil, in this enfeeblement of the empire. And the answer is clear that, with one or two exceptions, they counted for neither. They had no deep or large influence on the life of the empire, even through their husbands. The Roman ideal of womanhood was changing once more as in the early days they were diverted from interest in public affairs, except in so far as the cause of the church called for their interference. We must not conceive them as powerless witnesses of the gradual dissolution of the empire. No one, man or woman, saw that the empire was dissolving or dreamed of its fall until it lay in ruins under the feet of the northern tribes, None reflected that, since Constantine had assumed the purple, thirteen emperors out of twenty had been either executed or murdered, that the blood of able officers or servants had generally been mingled with that of the fallen ruler, and that hundreds of thousands of soldiers had been wasted in civil war. None reflected that, while they were distracted with religious quarrels, a formidable avalanche was gathering on the hills, or that, while the courts absorbed enormous sums in oriental display, the fiscal machinery of the state was running down. In any case, it was no longer the place of women to notice these things. Their duties were to rear the imperial family, wear pretty robes of cloth of gold, and build churches. The age of Livia, Agrippina, or Platina was over. These reflections will be enforced by the lives of the interesting empresses whom we have next to consider. The new emperors were unmarried youths at the time when their father died. Arcadius, a little dark, unpleasant-looking youth, whose laziness appeared in his dull, lustrousless eyes, 
was in his eighteenth year. Honorius was a boy of eleven, and as, during a reign of twenty-eight years, he never rose above the character or intelligence of a boy, and his two empresses were timid young girls, we must dismiss them in a page, though that page must contain an event that sent a thrill of excitement through civilization, the fall of the city of Rome. So little had our imperial characters to do with it that a later age amused itself by saying that, when Honorius was told that Rome was taken, he wept for the supposed loss of his favorite fowl, which bore that name. The real master of the Western world, over which young Honorius had nominal sway, was a powerful and gifted commander, Stilicho, of Vandal extraction. He had married Serena, the beautiful niece of Theodosius, and he led the armies and governed the Western Empire until his death. In 398, in his thirteenth year, Honorius was directed to wed Maria, the elder daughter of Stilicho. It was said that Theodosius had desired the union. Serena, at all events, desired it, and, although her daughter was yet immature, the wedding took place at Milan in 398. All that we have to say of her is that she died some time within the next ten years, probably, as Tillamont calculates, in the year 404. Her body was embalmed and buried in a Christian church at Rome, where the poor crumbling frame, laden with gold, was discovered in 1544. In the year 408, Honorius married his deceased wife's sister, Thermantia. Telamont very properly laments that he finds no record of any protest on the part of the Bishop of Rome, who probably celebrated it, against this irregular marriage but the modern reader will be more seriously concerned to hear the argument with which Serena urged it upon her reluctant husband. Maria, she said, had died a virgin. Before entrusting her immature child to the bed of Honorius, she had had some obscure operation performed on her, which would guard her virginity. Certainly Maria had had no children. Thermantia was equally unprepared for marriage, Zosimus says and the operation was repeated. It was a superfluous sacrifice to the ambition of Serena, because Stilicho fell in a palace intrigue a few months later, and the little maid was restored to her mother. Such was the short and melancholy story of the Empresses Maria and Amelia Materna Thermantia, as an inscription calls the younger. Their monument was terrible, Within a few months, the avalanche of the Gothic army descended from the Alps and devastated Italy, and Serena was, with the consent of her cousin Placidia, the emperor's sister, strangled by the Senate on the light and probably false charge of communicating with the enemy. Zosimus, at least, says that she was innocent, but he is not surprised at her fate as she had one day appropriated a jewelled ornament from the statue of one of his goddesses. Within two years Rome was sacked by the Goths, and Placidia was carried off by them. We turn to the east to follow the less tragic, but hardly less interesting, fortunes of Eudoxia and Eudocia. 
in the east as in the west theodosius had left a powerful minister to guide the hands of his young and unpromising son but the eastern minister rufinus had not the manly qualities of stilicho he had entered the palace by craft not by military exploits and had easily dissembled his vices from the too indulgent eye of theodosius when that emperor died, he cast aside the cloak, and pursued his native avarice, and exercised his cruelty without restraint. By fines, taxes, despoilments, and the unscrupulous ruin of his opponents, the hated Gaul amassed wealth and power, and ruled like an autocrat. He had a daughter of marriageable age, and Arcadius seemed to listen in compliant mood when he proposed that she should become his empress. The task of destroying an opponent took him for a time to Antioch, and he returned to hear that the emperor was preparing for marriage. He awaited the appointed day with eagerness. At length the hymnal procession set out from the palace, and the people gathered to witness its passage to the house of Rufinus, a superb villa in one of the suburbs to the intense surprise of all it stopped at a house in the city and the blushing and beautiful daughter of a frankish chief was announced to be the choice of the emperor while rufinus was pursuing his vengeance at antioch the eunuchs of the palace had conspired to defeat his plan and undermine his power the chief of them was Eutropius, a slave by birth, castrated immediately after birth, that he might bring a bigger price, and rising in time from the occupation of hairdresser to the daughter of General Arinthius to the position of high chamberlain at the palace. Such were the rulers of emperors in the fourth century. Eutropius knew that Arcadius had no attraction to the daughter of Rufinus, and chafed under the authority of her burly father. He cast about for a prettier companion, and soon had the affection of Arcadius safely engaged. The temporary absence of Rufinus gave them an opportunity, and Constantinople was enlivened by the rare spectacle of an imperial marriage, and the still rarer spectacle of the defeat of Rufinus. Eudoxia, such is the Greek name under which the new empress is presented to us, was the beautiful daughter of Bato, chief of the Franks. Historians, politely accepting the assurance of some of the writers of the time, say that she was being educated at Constantinople, her father having died in the service of the Eastern Army. It is perhaps a pity to disturb the plausible phrase, but the duty of a biographer is stern. The house in the city from which she was taken to wed the emperor was occupied by two young men of wealth. They were the sons of the commander Promotus, who had been one of the first victims of Rufinus. One of these young men, Zosimus says, had a beautiful maid in the house. We will not inquire too closely. The stern ideals of the Germanic tribes had relaxed as they came into closer contact with civilization, and it became common for them to lend or sell their daughters to the Romans. We remember the adventure of Pipera a century before. Eutropius submitted an adequate picture of the girl to Arcadius, whose pulse was quickened, 
and the son of Promotus easily parted with his tender pupil when he learned that it was for the purpose of discomfiting the destroyer of his father. Eudoxia had no less spirit than beauty of person, and she would watch with interest the duel between the wily eunuch and the powerful Gaul. Arcadius, whose feeble and stupid goodness, says Tillamont candidly, brought frightful evils on church and state, was a pawn in the game. But the big, wealthy, powerful Gaul now found a sterner opponent in Stilicho of the Western Empire, and within a year his head was separated from his body, and his wife and daughter were permitted to remain alive at Jerusalem. Eutropius and Eudoxia now led Arcadius like a dumb beast, in the words of Zosimus, and sucked the resources of the empire. The people of Constantinople gained nothing by the revolution. They had carried in triumph the grisly, extortionate hand of Rufinus through the streets of the city, but the supple hand of the eunuch proved as formidable. He surrounded himself with spies and informers, filled the prisons with men whose property he desired for himself or his friends, scattered statues of himself through the city, and assumed every title of honor short of that of Augustus. He would press his deformed person and painted face into the armor of a man to review the troops, and would harangue the Senate with a feeble imitation of the authority of a statesman while his exactions and the luxury of the court enfeebled the empire of the east he alienated the power of the west and had stilicho branded as a public enemy and the goths and huns crept nearer arcadius lazily riding in his gold-plated chariot studded with large gems in robes of silk embroidered with golden dragons or playing the monarch on a throne of solid gold, with a crowd of adoring eunuchs before him, had no more appreciation than a peasant of a Cappadocian village of the true situation of the empire. Eudoxia, beautiful, haughty, spoiled, reveling in the luxury of the palace, generous to the church and the poor, floated soothingly with the stream, she lived the languid life of an oriental princess within the confines of the palace, and was rarely seen even by the greater part of the palace servants. The only occasion when the populace saw her quit the marble city, which the palace of Constantine had become, was when, in 398, she walked humbly, with downcast eyes, but clothed in purple silk, with a glittering diadem on her head, by the side of St. Chrysostom, as he transferred certain relics of the saints. Chrysostom would find her in a different temper in a few years." The arrogance of Eutropius at last passed all bounds, and he ventured in the year 400 to threaten to expel Eudoxia from the palace. Whether she knew it or no, the time was ripe for the destruction of the repulsive minister. The people groaned under his terrible exactions, his infamous legislation, and his bloody tyranny. The leaders of the troops were prepared to sacrifice him. Eudoxia took her baby girls, Pulcheria and Arcadia, in her arms, and fled in tears to the emperor. Arcadius, becoming an emperor for a moment, says Philostorgius, signed the sentence of his favorite, 
and the eunuch soon found people and soldiers pressing like wolves for his destruction. He took refuge in a church where Chrysostom protected him from the fiery crowd, but quitted it after a time, apparently on the oath of either Eudoxia or Arcadius, that his life would be spared. He was exiled, recalled, tried, and, oath or no oath, put to death by the public executioner. Eudoxia's title of Nobilissima, most noble, had been elevated to that of Augusta at the beginning of the year 400, and her second daughter was born in April of the same year. She was now complete mistress of Arcadius and the empire, and she published her dignity with such extravagance that the western court sent an angry protest that, in causing her statues to be borne through the provinces, she had exceeded the privileges of her sex. In the following year she completed her ascendancy by giving birth to a boy, Theodosius II, and seemed to have a prospect of a long and luxurious, if useless, reign. But she had meantime quarrelled with Chrysostom, and she was to pass through a period of humiliation to a premature grave. In 398, Eutropius had transferred the austere and eloquent Chrysostom from his presbytery in Antioch to the archiepiscopal palace at Constantinople. The stern monk, as John of the Golden Mouth always remained at heart, was horrified from the first at the vice and luxury of the Christians of the imperial city, and even of their clergy, but he allowed two years to elapse before he began his fiery campaign against the sins of the laity. He applied himself first to the reform of the priests and the control of the monks. With that we have no concern." It is enough to say that the clergy bitterly resented his reforms and were ready to cooperate with Eudoxia in an effort to get rid of him. In 400 he began to attack the easy ways of the laity more sternly, and it is probable that some feeling was created between him and the empress over the massacre of the Gothic Aryan soldiers which took place in that year. Their commander, Gainus, had rebelled, and Arcadius had virtually surrendered to him. He marched his troops to the city, obtained the use of a church for them, and allowed them to roam about to the irritation of the people, until at last the people rose and slew seven thousand of the heretics. It seems that Eudoxia was alienated from Chrysostom, who had resented the grant of a church from that time. When, in the following year, St. Porphyry of Gaza came to the capital to obtain an imperial order to destroy the pagan temples of his town, Chrysostom declined to introduce him at court, and referred him to the eunuch Amantius. The sequel is not without interest in a study of the empress. The holy man was presented to Eudoxia, and promised that she should bear a boy if she would secure the destruction of paganism in Gaza. She promised to do so, but Arcadius, who seems to have resented religious wrangles, refused to grant permission. Then the boy was born, and Eudoxia felt an obligation to secure Porphyry's request. She instructed him to draw up a formal petition and present it to the baby Caesar as he was carried from the baptismal font 
The noble who carried the baby was then instructed how he was to behave, and a little comedy was arranged. Porphyry presented his paper to the infant Caesar. The noble read a little of it to the baby in a low voice, so that Arcadius should not hear, and then bobbed the child's head as a sign of assent. Arcadius wearily overlooked the trick. Eight beautiful temples were burned at Gaza, and Eudoxia supplied the funds for building a large church on their ruins. Telamont, whose admiring course through the fourth century is much tempered by groans, complains that this kind of piety favors only the demons. Chrysostom then went on to denounce, in unmeasured language, the vicious and luxurious ways of the wealthy women, especially widows of his church. He had diverted the coins of the laity from the army of monks, deprived the clergy of their mistresses, and declared that the great majority of the bishops of his province were hopelessly corrupt. With the aid of his rival, the Bishop of Alexandria, they conspired against him, and they reached the ear of the empress through the courtly and comfortable bishop Severian. The other ear of the empress was now assailed by the wealthy widows who smarted under the preacher's fierce lash. Such fine ladies as Marsa and Castricia would not be likely to sit under the socialistic oratory of the archbishop, but shorthand, notatio, was as commonly used in those days as in our own and he could thus irritate the eye of the rich as well as gladden the ear of the poor. They brooded darkly over his impersonal strictures, and no doubt detected occasional references to the luxurious empress in them. In time, Archbishop Theophilus was summoned from Alexandria. The bishops of the province eagerly drew up and passed a lengthy indictment of their superior, and before the orthodox population could gather what was happening, their order was on the way to exile. But the triumph of Eudoxia was as brief as that of Justina. The people rose in fury, and after the slaughter of seven thousand trained soldiers, made a light matter of the monks and sailors of Theophilus. When, in addition, an earthquake shook the province, Eudoxia prudently yielded to the human pressure, under the decent pretext of obeying the divine will. Chrysostom returned to his church, and the sight of the gay fleet that set out to meet him, the flaring illumination of the shores, the frenzied rejoicing of the returning procession, must have filled the palace on the heights with bitterness." Such a truce could be observed with cold discretion by neither party, and it was not long before the struggle was renewed. In honor of the birth of the third daughter of the empress, Marina, a silver statue of her was erected on a column of porphyry at the door of the senate. The prefect of the city commemorated the event with games or other rejoicings in the square before the statue, and they were naturally accompanied by profane, if not licentious, gaiety. Straight opposite, across the square, was the door of Chrysostom's church, and the devout regarded this demonstration as an outrage on religion. Chrysostom's sermons became more explicit. 
In a later age, a sermon was published under his name, in which the people, or the readers, were reminded of the infamous Herodias clamoring for the head of John. The sermon is generally regarded as spurious, but we have the weighty authority of Socrates for the fact that the extempore preacher did utter the fatal name of Herodias. The conflict ended with the exile of the archbishop, June 404, but on the following night his church was found to be in flames, and the fire spread to and almost destroyed the Senate House, a building adorned with the most exquisite marbles and works of art. The condition of Constantinople, the anxiety of Eudoxia, during the following months may be imagined. It is enough to know that Eudoxia met a painful death through miscarriage in the month of September of the same year, 404. I will not reproduce the horrible details that a more orthodox age discovered in connection with her death. If Chrysostom spoke from a bitter dissolution, as Dr. Puke holds, Eudoxia had not less cause to be embittered. Even her religious zeal had led her into the most painful experiences. For the state, in which she had high power, she did nothing. The vultures gathered on the hills, while the court absorbed its little soul in voluptuous pomp, and the people fought each other over creeds. We may dissent from the hard verdict of Gibbon that Eudoxia indulged her passions while the empire decayed, and we must regard as too frivolous for consideration the suspicion of unchastity which he reproduces. But we must grant that, where Eudoxia's action was not selfish, it was generally useless and frequently mischievous. We have carried the slender story of the empresses in the West as far as the year 410, and we shall find no other empress there until 421. We may therefore continue the record of the East and consider the romantic story of Eudocia before we proceed to the last scene in the Empire of the West. After an ignoble reign of thirteen years, the elder son of Theodosius died in his bed in the year 408. His only son, Theodosius II, was clothed with the purple in his sixth year, and a prudent and experienced minister controlled the state for the next seven years. In 415, Pulcheria, the elder sister of Theodosius, was named Augusta, and gradually assumed the guardianship of her brother and the control of the state. She was as yet only in her sixteenth year and Theodosius was only two years younger, but her cold, decisive temper compensated in some measure for the strength which Theodosius wholly lacked, and she held the reins of the empire. Deeply religious, she took herself and induced her younger sisters to take a vow of chastity, which was written in gold and diamonds on the wall of the public church, the palace offered the singular spectacle of a nunnery within a luxurious court. Only pious eunuchs and women were allowed to approach the imperial virgins, in whose sober apartments no music was ever heard save that of the psalm and sacred song. While the weakly youth was educated in the pomp that befits a king, as well as the propriety that adorns a Christian, he learned both lessons with success, 
but we cannot avoid a suspicion that less earnest and assiduous efforts were made to fit him for the task of taking in his own hands the levers of the heavy machinery of the state it is proper to add however that partly from circumstances partly from the prudence and care of pulcheria that machinery ran with unaccustomed ease and the empire enjoyed a span of peace and prosperity at length the anxious question of the imperial marriage arose and the virginal pulcheria confronted it with her usual coolness and decision the task was simplified in a sense by theodosius he declared that he would marry only a young lady of exceptional bodily charm and would pay no attention to wealth or dignity it may have occurred to pulcheria that an empress thus elevated would be less likely to dispute her power than some woman who had been born into the world of large action she began her search with the aid of polinus a youth who had been educated with theodosius and was his intimate friend one day at this period a young athenian girl was brought into her presence with a petition she was of the fairest athenian type a supple and graceful young woman with skin of a snowy complexion large intelligent eyes and a beautiful head of golden hair further she pleaded her cause in perfect greek with a surprising restraint eloquence and art she was athenais the daughter of an athenian teacher he had cultivated her mind and her beauty with all the resources of his art and had at his death left her only a hundred pieces of gold on the pretext that she was wealthy enough in her advantages she begged her brothers to share the inheritance more justly but they refused she had therefore come with a relative to the house of an aunt at constantinople and asked for a just distribution of her father's money pulcheria's interest was not in the case but in the girl she took the aunt aside and prudently inquired if the girl was a maid and a christian athenes was declared to be a virgin though a pagan but the defect was one that could easily be removed pulcheria joyfully told her brother that she had found the beauty he desired and described her they arranged a second visit during which theodosius and polinus should inspect the maiden from behind a curtain in a short time athenais had changed her name into elia eudosia changed her religion into that of christ and changed her condition into that of wife of the emperor she was married on june seven four twenty one in it is believed the twentieth year of her age there was consternation in the home she had quitted at athens and her brothers hid themselves in the provinces eudosia had them sought and conducted to constantinople there they learned to their surprise that she thought herself indebted to their conduct for her fortune and they were richly rewarded from these pleasant girlish traits we pass to the inevitable struggle with pulcheria theodosius remained an imperial non-entity he could hunt paint and carve but public business so bored him that he signed documents without reading them one day pulcheria put a parchment before him and he as usual blindly appended his name 
Shortly afterwards he summoned Eudocia, and was told that she was now the slave of Pulcheria, and awaited her orders. The document he had signed was a deed of sale of his wife, but it does not appear that the little stratagem made much impression on him. Pulcheria still held the reins. Eudocia had her first child at the end of 422, and was in the following January entitled Augusta. The court had a visit, too, from the Empress of the West, Gala Placidia, and her daughter, and large matters were discussed. In 433 we may perhaps trace some influence of Eudocia on legislation. An edict imposing the death sentence on the remaining pagans may be confidently ascribed to Pulcheria, but an edict reforming and enlarging the higher schools of Constantinople seems rather to remind us of the Athenian scholar's daughter. She occupied much of her leisure in writing historical and religious poetry, and the little that survives of it has been recently edited by Ludwig. It is correct in form and devoid of inspiration. The years pass tranquilly until 437, when we begin to suspect that there is friction with Pulcheria. Few things had happened beyond the echo of the stormy movements of the West and the disquieting advance of the Huns to disturb the life of the court. One year, 434, had indeed brought a strange thrill into the imperial nunnery. A princess of the Western Empire, Honoria, came to Constantinople, enciente by her own steward. But the hard lot of Honoria, and the romantic devices by which she sought to enliven it, will occupy us later. Pulcheria promptly enclosed the fiery young princess in a convent, and the scandal would be mentioned only in whispers. Three years later, 437, the Western Emperor, Valentinian III, came to Constantinople, and led away Eudocia's beautiful daughter, Licinia Eudoxia, to share his trembling throne. The next detail is that, in 439, Eudocia made a lengthy pilgrimage to Palestine, and there can be little doubt that her absence from the palace for a year, which is unconvincingly connected by Gibbon with the marriage of her daughter, two years before, was due in part or entirely to some quarrel with either Theodosius or Pulcheria, most probably the latter. At Antioch, on the journey, Eudocia enjoyed the prestige of her solitary and independent dignity. From a golden throne she delivered a studied oration to the Senate, and the tumultuous applause and voting of statues to her must have greatly increased her self-consciousness. The shower of gold she rained upon the churches and monasteries of Palestine, and indeed all along her route, elicited a no less stimulating demonstration. She returned to Constantinople, apparently about the end of 439, with a larger sense of her importance, and with such priceless relics as the arm of St. Stephen and the authentic picture of Mary, which Luke the physician had painted. It is only at a much later date that Greek writers add to her luggage a phial of the virgin's milk, some underclothing of the infant Christ, and similar treasures. 
The pilgrimage was the turning point in the career of Eudocia. So far, her life had been one of splendid and powerless prestige. It now rapidly darkens with intrigue, is overshadowed by tragedy and suspicion, and soon ends in a virtual exile. We are sufficiently acquainted with the writers of the time to expect that they will throw very little light on this fresh imperial tragedy. But, using the later and less weighty Greek writers with discretion, we may obtain a fairly confident idea of its main features. Two facts are related by writers of the time, and are beyond question. In the year following Eudocia's return, her friend, and the intimate friend of the emperor, the charming and accomplished Paulinus, was exiled and put to death without public trial. The second fact is that, a few years later, Eudocia left the palace forever to spend the remainder of her life at Jerusalem. The later Byzantine writers give a rounded story of these events, and on the whole one is disposed to think that in this case they are revealing the suppressed truth. Theophanes, in his Chronographia, says that a eunuch named Chrysaphius rose into favor and urged Eudocia to secure the dismissal of Pulcheria. They persuade Theodosius that, since Pulcheria has taken a vow of virginity, her proper place is among the deaconesses of the church, and Archbishop Flavian is instructed to take her away. Flavian, however, prefers to have her in the palace, and he directs her simply to live apart for a time and wait. Then, in 440, occurs the execution, one may almost say murder, of Paulinus. These later Greek writers all give a romantic story in connection with it. As Theodosius and Eudocia go to church on Epiphany morning, a peasant presents the emperor with a remarkably large apple. He gives it to Eudocia, who privately sends it to Paulinus. Unluckily, Paulinus in turn presents it to the emperor, who sternly asks Eudocia what she has done with it. She declares and repeats with a most solemn oath that she has eaten it. Paulinus is at once sent away and decapitated. A much nearer and more weighty authority, John Malala, confirms in substance this story of the apple, and says that Paulinus was suspected of intimacy with the empress. There is no serious reason to doubt it, nor is any other reason suggested for the murder of Paulinus. But whether Eudocia was guilty, or the suspicion was inspired by the servants of Pulcheria, we are unable to determine. The eunuch then, says Theophanes, presses Eudocia to attack Flavian and Pulcheria. He reminds her of all the bitter things she had endured from Pulcheria, and covers the human motive with a pretense of religious zeal. We know at least that Eudocia embraced the Eutychian heresy which Chrysaphius had adopted, and that a church council was summoned in 441 that put an end to Flavian. The intrigue, however, runs on in obscurity until Eudocia suddenly asks permission to retire to Jerusalem. Theodosius could not divorce her, but we can easily believe that, as these writers say, he treated her with such severity, repeatedly reminding her of Paulinus, that she was driven into exile. 
Pulcheria returned to the palace and resumed her control of the emperor and the empire. Gibbon scouts these Greek fictions, but not only has he not taken sufficient account of John Malala, whose authority he recognizes, but a detail he adds from the still more authoritative Chronicle of Marcellinus, which is almost contemporary, gives a very serious confirmation. In the suite of Eudocia, when she set out for Palestine, were a priest named Severus and a deacon named John, favorites of hers. They had not long left Constantinople when an officer named Saturninus, of the faction opposed to Eudocia, came upon them with an order to put Severus and John to death. It appears that they, too, were executed for supposed intimacy with the Empress. Eudocia lost her self-control at this brutal outrage and bade her servants make an end of Saturninus. When Theodosius heard, he stripped Eudocia of her imperial prerogatives and left her in the position of an ordinary citizen. These authentic statements of Marcellinus strongly confirm the story, and it is clear that the Byzantine court was stained by a sordid quarrel and several brutal murders. The romance of Eudocia's career was not yet over. Marcellinus sends her to Jerusalem in 444, the later writers in 442. However that may be, in the year 445 we find her again embarking on an unhappy adventure. The monks of Palestine were infected with the Eutychian heresy, and they welcomed so powerful a patroness. With the aid of her servants, they ousted the Orthodox bishop of Jerusalem, and a vigorous monk was put in his place. The monk bishop, with his military army of ten thousand monkish followers, held Jerusalem for twenty months, in spite of the imperial troops, drove all the Orthodox bishops out of Palestine, and slew and cast to the dogs a number of their followers. In this quaint company, the delicate Greek empress continued to build churches and monasteries for three years. But when she hears at length of the misfortunes of her daughter, which the Bishop of Rome, as well as the courts of Ravenna and Constantinople, ascribe to her heresy, she sends to consult the famous hermit of the pillar, Simeon Stilites. Simeon recommends her to confer with a certain saintly monk of the desert. The monk will neither leave his desert for her, nor permit a woman to enter it. She therefore builds a tower on the hill some miles away, and in that safe and public elevation the monk enlightens her out of her heresy. Eudocia brought her adventurous career to a close in 460, protesting with her last breath that she was innocent of the charge of unchastity. Pulcheria continued to rule the Eastern Empire in the name of Theodosius until he died in the year 450, inglorious and unhonored. It was now seen that the prosperity of the empire in her earlier years was a hollow truce of circumstances. When the fierce and rapacious Huns approached it in 446 and 447, the Eastern Empire tremblingly purchased peace by the most ignominious concessions. When Theodosius died, she assumed sole control of the empire, and the head of the eunuch Chrysaphius was at once removed from his shoulders. 
but the pressure of her people forced her to marry, and an aged senator, Marcian, engaged to share her throne without sharing her virginal bed. To his more vigorous hands the affairs of state now passed, and Pulcheria maintained her virtue and piety to the end. But we must now leave the oriental pomp, the emasculated frame, and the splendid piety of the Byzantine court, to conclude our story in the West. End of section 25